0: State form believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact, like a good neighbor. state form is there. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy. as women, we put our hearts into everything. May is high blood pressure education month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the pressure wants to help black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation during high blood pressure education month, let's help get to our goal of one hundred thousand black women. Putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com/RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com/RTP. For the first time in a while, I have quite a bit of fun travel coming up this summer, and I'm really counting on Macy's to help round out my wardrobe for some of these trips. Right now, I've got my eye on a new bag and sandals from Coach and some super cute tops and dresses from Macy's On 34th brand. And you can never really have too many pairs of sunglasses. And there are a lot of cute options to explore right now. If you need a little help getting your summer look together, shop at macy's.com ownyourstyle. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for Session 165 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. By now, you've likely heard the jokes about gaining the quarantine 15. But what you might not have heard is why jokes and messages like this can be harmful. So today, we're gonna chat about it. For this conversation, I was joined by Dr. Gail Brooks. Dr. Brooks is Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer for the Renfrew Center. She leads the Renfrew Clinical Excellence Board and the Clinical Training Department and has clinical and administrative oversight responsibility for Renfrew's residential facility in Florida and for the non-residential sites in California, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, North Carolina, and Tennessee. For the past 30 years, she's treated patients from diverse backgrounds who suffer from eating disorders. Dr. Brooks served as the eating disorder specialist in the HBO film Thin, has appeared on Good Morning America, and has been featured in a variety of notable publications. A frequent presenter at conferences and workshops, Dr. Brooks speaks on topics such as the treatment of the complex patient, eating disorders and cultural diversity, the interplay between eating disorders and trauma, and eating disorders in midlife women. Dr. Brooks is a member of the IAEDP Board of Directors and former co-chair of the Academy of Eating Disorders Diversity Special Interest Group. Dr. Brooks and I discussed the link between trauma and eating disorders, why there's been a spike in disordered eating during the pandemic, how to recognize if your relationship with food has become unhealthy, and the role that social media plays in eating disorders. If you notice something that resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag #TBGinSession. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brooks. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm very pleased to have you join us today because I know we have been hearing lots and lots of, you know, jokes that aren't actually funny about like the quarantine 15 and, you know, people thinking about their bodies a lot. And we know a lot of our like self-care strategies in terms of going to the gym and all of those things have been upended. And so it feels like there's just a lot more attention maybe than usual around like eating and body image. And so I'm glad that you were able to join us today for this conversation.
1: Yes. Well, you're so right. I think all of those things are impacting all of us, but in particular, people with eating disorders, I think, are are really struggling right now.
0: Absolutely. So I know that the National Eating Disorder Association's Instant Messaging Service has seen a 75 percent increase in volume traffic since the pandemic began. And I know that there is a large connection between eating disordered behaviors and trauma. So I wanted to hear if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what you think is really being triggered for people right now.
1: Yeah. Well, I think in so many ways, we're probably all being triggered by the crisis that we're in. You know, I think the fact that we are in the middle of this COVID crisis and also what's happening, you know, sort of with racial inequity and and all of that, I think it's causing a lot of uh, heightened emotion among us all. You know, in particular, depression and anxiety, as well as other types of um, mental health conditions like eating disorders, disordered eating, and and even body image dissatisfaction are really on the rise over the last several months. And I think there's several factors that impact that. The fact that we were sort of very quickly thrown into isolation, you know, being asked to, you know, stay at home, really separate from our connections, and uh, also spend a lot of time around family members, which I think can be sometimes a mixed blessing. But you know we're really social beings, and I, I think when we don't have connection that that really does make it much more difficult for us to deal with the stressors in life and to also just deal with with any sort of trauma that we may have. Along with that, I think the fears that we have around our own health and the fear of contagion and anxiety about death, I don't know about you, but I've, I don't know that I ever really thought about death as much as I have in the last several months thinking, you know, it could happen to me just as much as it could happen to someone else. And so I think that can certainly be very Uh, sort of scary. If you have an eating disorder and, and, you know, are struggling just with sort of how you're feeling about your body, I think all of these pressures are going to kind of be magnified in many ways. And the way it oftentimes comes out is in the sort of complex, problematic relationship that a person might have with food and, and with their body. So if you take somebody who's maybe struggling with anorexia, which is really you know, intentional sort of self-starvation, that, you know, there, you tend to be pretty rigid in wanting to have certain foods available and whatnot. And, and if in the pandemic, you're having to stay home or grocery stores don't have the foods that you're sort of rigidly sort of attached to, that that can become very uh, frightening. You can feel very out of control. And just the uncertainty of life, I think, can really impact an individual and they may choose to really not want to eat because of that. I think more commonly what we're seeing is, is with in the areas of bulimia and binge eating disorder when someone is sort of home 24-7, the routine is disrupted, you may have very limited opportunities to go out and even buy food be more sedentary, that this, you know, understandably oftentimes uh, results in some changes in our body, you know, that we may begin to gain weight, which is, again, when we're going through such disruption, it's no wonder that our bodies may also go through some changes in in, uh, with this as well, and that this can lead to increased feelings of shame and depression and, you know, maybe sleeping all day or really having a very difficult time with routine, and that that can lead to more binge eating and you know engaging in purging behavior, perhaps. Um, so these are some of the things that I think are really sort of impacting an individual right now.
0: Yeah. And Dr. Brooks, I'm wondering if you can talk about how we might know when something has risen to the level of a concern. Right. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people like stress eat or, you know, we talk about emotional eating. Right. right. So I think it can be hard to know where the line is, where it is just, OK, this is how I'm coping versus maybe I need to talk with someone about this. Can you say a little bit more about how we might know when it's a concern?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we can really sort of think about this on a continuum because probably all of us at times emotionally eat, or maybe there are times when you don't eat when you're feeling really pretty stressed. So those are not unusual kinds of reactions. But when it comes to the point where it's really a focus and it's more of an obsessive focus an obsessive focus on weight that weight and controlling of weight is uh, becomes something that you're thinking about all the time and engaging in behaviors to manage it if you're feeling very depressed about your body and really focused on you know comparing yourself a lot to others and it's really beginning to disrupt your your daily functioning and your feelings about yourself, um, that's certainly a sign that it's, it's reached a point of, of an eating disorder or possibly an eating disorder. And if you're having medical symptoms in relation to either how you're, you're eating or not eating, that, that also can be you know, certainly a clear sign as well.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Brooks, I know that one of the common misconceptions is that eating disorders only happen to young people, right? So, you know, maybe if you're beyond high school age, you're not likely to develop an eating disorder. We know, of course, that that is not true. And so I'm curious to hear, can you share a little bit about how eating disorders develop?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for so long, the belief was that eating disorders were like an urban, suburban white girl's disease. And what we have come to understand through research and, and really just asking the appropriate questions is that eating disorders cross, you know, racial lines, gender, age, that it's not just, you know, young, a young teenager who develops an eating disorder. You know, we can have complicated relationships with food at any age, really. And oftentimes, I mean, I I think what really sort of fuels an eating disorder is really how you relate to your emotions And that when someone is having a hard time tolerating certain emotions, like let's say anxiety or sadness, um, depression, shame, whatever, that we look for things to help kind of numb that, to somehow make that less intense. And food can be a way of doing that, either eating or not eating. Both things can result in you being able to somehow distance yourself or to reduce down the intensity of an emotion that feels intolerable. So oftentimes what will, you know, there are several factors that can lead to developing an eating disorder, some of which, you know, we believe sort of happen in childhood. But I think what's probably more important is what keeps an eating disorder going once you have it. And what keeps it going is the continual avoidance of, really experiencing your full range of emotions, that you are engaging in behaviors to really dampen down your, your emotional experience. So every time you start to feel, whether it's that anticipatory anxiety or sadness, depression, loneliness, that there's this feeling of I can't tolerate this. It's going to kill me. I need to do something to make it go down. And we may turn to food or turn to restriction, um, turn to exercise, purging. These are all ways to try to sort of reduce down the intensity of emotion.
0: So this may be a good place to kind of talk about then what treatment looks like, right? So if yeah. if a part of what keeps it going is not allowing yourself to experience this range of emotion, but that's the thing you're most Afraid of right? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's that is where the treatment happens. So, so how do you bridge that gap between somebody who feels really uncomfortable experiencing their emotions and getting them to a place where they can tolerate it a little better, so that maybe food does not become the answer?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's really, really where the rubber kind of meets the road a bit here. Is that you have to first understand the role of emotions and the fact that emotions are adaptive. It's important that we feel them, and all emotions are important, you know, people tend to want to only feel the good emotions mm-hmm. and not have to feel the bad emotions. But in reality, all emotions serve a purpose. And that if we don't allow ourselves to sort of experience all of those emotions, that they end up then sort of developing sort of a vicious cycle of maladaptive behavior or behavior that's not, is functioning to not feel, but it doesn't really function well in our lives. And so I think treatment needs uh, needs to first include just understanding the role of your emotions. That they play. And, like, for example, if you're feeling anxious about COVID, what anxiety does is that it prompts us to prepare, to to get focused and to prepare for what may be coming. And it's that sort of feeling that we have in our stomach and that sort of itchiness that we have in our body. And there's a purpose for that. That might mean then that you focus on the fact that you need to be washing your hands and wearing a mask and socially distancing. But if it goes, You sort of, you know, if that then becomes something that you get so terrified about that you can't allow yourself to feel this emotion, you might then start to really isolate yourself in ways where you're not at all going out and and being with people and even in a socially distant way or through any sort of, whether it's through the telephone or whatever, you may be cutting down your social connections because you don't want to feel that anxiety that you feel um, right now. So I think a part of it's learning about the importance of emotions, allowing yourself to actually feel them. So one of the things we do in our treatment model is that we really ask people to lean into difficult emotion rather than trying to distract from it, you know, rather than trying to do something to not feel it. And that what happens when you lean into emotion is that you discover that emotions have a natural life cycle. They kind of um, rise rapidly and then sort of peak, and then they sort of come down slowly on their own. And that happens in a matter of, you know, seconds to minutes to minutes that you can, the natural life cycle of that particular emotional experience you're having. But most people don't sort of allow themselves to feel that whole, you know, cycle of the emotion and instead begin to do things to, to bring it down or to isolate or to really, to avoid it. And what that does is make them the emotion more intense because every time, then you start to feel anything, you then start to, you know, turn to behaviors, whether it's eating, not eating, substance use, you know, self harm. It can be lots of different behaviors that help to sort of bring the emotion down. Um, So I think treatment really needs to require really becoming a bit more of an expert around your own emotions, uh, knowing what you're feeling, being able to unpack the feeling, figuring out that, you know, well, I could turn to food right now, but if I were to really just tune into what is happening in this moment in a sort of mindful way, What's happening in this moment inside my body? What am I feel, feeling in terms of sensations? What are my thoughts that I'm having right now? Some of which can be kind of catastrophic. And what do I feel the urge to do? And when we can sort of look at our emotions in that way, we, it sort of gives us some perspective and also gives us the ability to kind of look at so, how do I want to respond to this? Because some responses are going to be more adaptive than others. You know, if I go and binge eat, then what's going to happen? That may in the short run. Give me some relief because I'm going to feel like I've distracted from those feelings. But in the long run, I'm going to be feeling more shame and depression and distress uh, because I've, I've been changed. Those would be the things I think would be important to kind of take a look at.
0: And Dr. Brooks, do you feel like virtual settings have adapted well to treatment for eating disorders? I know sometimes treatment for eating disorders sometimes involves like groups and very like experiential kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious to hear just about how treatment has transformed maybe in a virtual setting.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question because we we found ourselves in you know mid March I think like most of the country suddenly having to shift and um, be home and not be able to bring people into groups and and really put a lot more onto a virtual platform and I know at Renfrew we it was we did it in a matter of about three days was to take all of our programs that were not in our residential facility but our day programs and our intensive outpatient programs and put them all on virtual platform. So all patients had to move from being in person to being actually virtual. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of anxiety, I think, with patients initially around, you know, what it would be like to be, you know, on Zoom throughout the day and and that sort of thing. What we have found, which I I think has been interesting even just to the whole field of eating disorders, is that patients have adapted very well to this. Um, I know our treatment model, which is one that we do a lot of psychoeducation, and um, we, which is something you can translate pretty well into Zoom. But we were also able to do a lot of experiential things as well um, with patients. You know, do, being able to provide support during meals was something that we had to sort of learn how to do. Patients do have their meals on camera. So, you know, they will fix a meal, come back and, you know, they're in a group with other people uh, eating their meals and getting support and whatnot. And and believe it or not, I think people have found that to be actually very, very helpful. I think ultimately I, when we can come back in person, I think ultimately that's, that's where we sort of want to be because again, I think social connection via Zoom is not the same fully a social connection in the room. But I think we've we've been very surprised that it has seemed to meet the needs of our, our patients pretty well. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And I wonder if that might not be something that you all might think about kind of keeping later, right? Because I would imagine that for certain people, like getting to one of your facilities may have been difficult. But now that you've kind of tested this out and seen that it can work, though not maybe as great as in person, it may, you know, add for the option for other people to be able to participate in some
1: of the programs. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I think it it has really allowed for more access to care, Mm -hmm. you know, so that if you can't, you're not within a driving distance, you still can, you know, join treatment and you know we're doing research right now to really look at whether the outcomes are any different on virtual than on in person you know that and and so far we're not really seeing that anecdotally but we're really going to sort of back it up with with research as well to show that you can get you know the same level of of treatment effect even if you are doing virtual versus in person
0: mhm Nice. So Dr. Brooks, you talked earlier just about anxiety, right? And I feel like that has been the overwhelming like feeling for much of what a lot of us have been experiencing since March, right? Just this anxiety about what's going to happen. And we know that that can be a tie-in for eating disordered behavior. And I'm wondering how you maybe have had to work differently with clients, given that what we typically teach around anxiety is, okay, is this realistic? And, you know, like, are you kind of going too far in your thinking? when so much of it really is it is realistic right right, at this point (laughs) um you know so people who had you know concerns about germs and those kinds of things that kind of seem far-fetched you know before march Mm -hmm. is not so far-fetched right now right and so i'm wondering you know what kinds of things have had to change in your approach to working with clients given that you know so much more of anxiety does feel like it is grounded in reality right now
1: right right no you're right and you know i mean anxiety is a natural part of life and you know oftentimes when you're talking with someone who has high anxiety they can give you a lot of good reasons why they're anxious mm-hmm. you know and if our minds dwell on the things that could possibly be dangerous yes you could really kind of be um, uh, walking around uh, feeling like you don't want to leave your house because there's so many things that can happen and so there is always I think a realistic component to the things that uh, that we make us anxious and that we're fearful about. And not right now, it's, it's, it's even probably more pronounced, but I think when we start to catastrophize, meaning that we, we are not really weighing the likelihood that something is going to happen in this moment, and partly because we're sort of uh, just ruminating over it and whatnot, that that's what begins to affect our ability to, to function. And right now we're we're having to function, even in spite of the fact that we are in a pandemic and that um, we have to learn how to be able to kind of feel that anxiety, but still be able to weigh the amount of danger that there really is. You know, so for example, if I can't order my groceries and I have to go to the grocery store Yes, there's some risk, but there's some things I can do to try to mitigate that risk. And if I don't go to the grocery store, I may not have anything to eat. So I've got to somehow weigh the risk and also doing what I know I need to do to be able to function.
0: You know, early on, Dr. Brooks, kind of when all this first started, you would read a lot of stories and hear a lot of stories just about like all the hoarding, you know, like people getting yeah. all these groceries and toilet paper and all that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, If there has been some connection or like in your work, maybe in or maybe through the research, there is some connection between like people who had maybe early experiences with like food insecurity and how that has now been connected to our experiences of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Well, we're learning a lot more about food insecurity and the relationship between that and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And also, I think in terms of what we're seeing here with with being in the pandemic, you know, we used to think that eating disorder behavior was really something of more an affluent kind of thing where you have food and you just don't want to kind of eat it kind of thing, or you have so much food around. But what we're learning is that when there is food insecurity, when a person truly does not have enough reliable food available, that that produces many of the same kinds of behaviors that we see in someone who is bulimic or anorexic or engages in binge eating disorder. This sort of preoccupation with food, guilt around eating, also, even just issues around weight gain, if, if you can imagine that as well. And if you have a lot of anxiety, not only about feeding yourself, but feeding your children, that that seems to eat really increase one's vulnerability to developing an eating disorder. And this is something that's really new that we're starting to sort of understand in the field that wasn't seen before.
0: Mm-hmm. So we started early on talking about how we've seen like lots of, you know, jokes and memes about the quarantine 15 and people being very mindful. I want to hear you talk a little bit about why those kinds of messages are harmful.
1: Yeah, I could probably go on and on about social media, but... We'll dig into it. We'll dig into it. I'm I'm sure, you know, that... One of the things I think that happens during right now during this time is that when people are home more and you know sort of are feeling more bored and maybe their routines have been more disrupted, that they're probably spending more time on social media. And I think the what maybe started out as a joke in terms of the quarantine fifteen, I think is really legitimate anxiety that and in, that individuals are having about some natural weight gain that probably people are experiencing. You know, again, I think there's been a major shift in our lifestyles, and it wouldn't be surprising that that might result then in a shift in how we're eating and also the amount of movement that we have in our lives. And if weight gain and messages about that on social media and comparing individuals and whatnot is really rampant. I think it's understandable that we're going to see a lot of people be really traumatized by this and feel a lot of self-hatred, a lot of distress around their own bodies and, and not being able to be in an accepting mode that these are unusual times and that we have to take care of ourselves and be able to accept ourselves you know, when you're home balancing kids and work and, you know, trying to get a meal on the table, you may be turning to very quick things to satisfy everybody. And that, that may have an impact on, on things, but it doesn't mean that you failed or that something's wrong or that somehow you're, you're inadequate.
0: Yeah, and I think that there isn't also the awareness of just how our bodies respond in a stressful situation, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, so there may be the tendency to hold on to weight because we are like preparing for battle almost in some ways.
1: Exactly. Well, yeah. that's one of the things when we look at eating disorders among Black people and in people of color is that you know there's there's been so much focus on obesity being about what you eat you know and you know i think clearly what we're coming to understand is that you know it's not about the fried chicken it's about the stress and that stress really has much more of an impact on how a person you know the impact physiologically on an individual that may result in them gaining weight and and Uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I think we need to understand that the stress itself is going to be very impactful on both our behaviors and on how our bodies respond.
0: So what tips do you have, Dr. Brooks, for people who may be struggling with disordered eating and seeing like the memes and things shared on social media? What tips would you have for them for how to maybe protect themselves or, you know, to
1: manage some of that? Yeah. Well, you know, and this is coming from somebody who sort of refuses to be on social media for the most part. So I I do sort of uh, put that out there, but I, I think it's, it's really important to reduce it down. You know, I think when you're looking at something, if you're finding yourself going through your feed and feeling bad, it's time to get off. It's time to either you know, mute those people that may be putting things out there that are really triggering shame inside of you and, and a lot of negative self talk. That you don't need that. It, that's not helpful. And uh, so, I think to be able to to really just say no, turn it off. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think is really thinking about any time that we're going through a lot of stress, that what we need more than anything is self care. That that's really what the body is craving is something that is going to feel as if you are, you know, listening to what your body is needing in the moment. And that may be everything from what you eat, in terms of what your body is kind of wanting in this moment to what you need in terms of being able to get some relaxation, get some, you know, sometimes it's getting out and just getting some fresh air, um, being able to engage in joyful activity, you know, which is not the same thing as going out and running in the heat and sweating and all of that, but really doing something where your body actually feels good in the moment while you're doing it, that you know, that can be uh, very, very important as well. I think finding connection is so important during this time um, that if you are finding yourself really not connected with friends and colleagues, you know, even though Zoom is not the same as being there, it is better than sitting in your own isolation and in your own boredom. And so I think to intentionally put those moments in your schedule where you're staying connected um, is, is very, very important. And I also think just being able to think about what, what you value, what's important to you, what you feel grateful about in your life, to sort of be in the moment that you're in right now, as opposed to maybe stressing out about the future or you know, dwelling on what you didn't do and, and dwelling in the past. But to really find some mindful moments and a mindful practice, I think, can really take you a long way. Yeah, those are great tips, Dr. Brooks. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so I think something else that is happening on social media, um, and I think particularly on platforms like Instagram and TikTok, because there are more visual platforms, and I know you mm-hmm. said you're not really on social, but I'm sure you know because of your work what these yes. are, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and it, it feels like there tends to be lots of like videos or like beautiful pictures of food, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And And in some ways, You know, it feels like people are sharing tips for like how to be healthy and like this is how you can make, you know, these vegetables interesting and you might not have thought about it that way. Right. And so it feels like there's a fine line between like what kinds of things could be helpful. On social media and what kinds of things, like there's a TikTok uh, hashtag that we found that talked about like what I ate today, right? Where people are kind of sharing, mm-hmm. you know, like they may yeah. eat like a handful of raspberries or something, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Right. And yeah. so it feels like there is a very fine line between what can be helpful and what can be harmful.
1: Yeah, you're, you're right. And I think that so much of, uh, of those extremes are out there um, for individuals to get sort of caught up in. You know, I, I think it's probably better to in some way sort of step out of it if you can, because you don't know if you're gonna be necessarily the person that's gonna get so kind of preoccupied with it that it becomes more destructive to you rather than than helpful. I think that there's a lot of moralistic sort of attitude out there that if you can eat this particular way or if you can do this particular exercise program daily and then put it online and that sort of thing that that somehow that makes you a better person and I think that that kind of thinking is really destructive you know, that we start to think that somehow how we look, what our weight is, is going to have us feel differently inside. And the reality is that that's really not true. You know that if the thought is that if I lose weight, I'm going to be, you know, more confident, you know. Well, you know, that doesn't weight and confidence really don't have anything to do with one another. And if you ask yourself, you know, how How would you be if you were confident? What would that look like? Those behaviors are really what are important. How do I want to be behaving in a way that is more in line with my values for myself? And that has nothing to do with body size, you know. And so just beginning to sort of think more about sort of the deeper values that you have, rather than hanging so much on weight and body image, which is really driven by, I think, our societal messages that are that are really not healthy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we started recording, Dr. Brooks, you and I were talking a little bit about um, just the, the reliance on Zoom and other video platforms that we have yeah. now and how that is impacting our body image. And that is not something I had thought
1: about. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about like how you're seeing that show up. First, in terms of just how I think it affects us, whether you have an eating disorder or not, I think being in a interaction with someone where you are just basically staring at their face. You know, you're not you know, when we're in, in the room with one another, you look all around, you're not so concentrated on looking at the other person and the having the other person look at you. And I think that that can create in us, and I think about for myself, even the sense of, oh my God, what are they seeing on camera? You know, and then you can sort of see yourself on camera. And I think that sort of discomfort that comes with it, I find myself sort of looking at the gray hairs and thinking, oh my goodness, I should have done something about that. And you know, that it can be a real preoccupation. We find with some of our, the patients that we treat that, really struggle with an eating disorder, one of the, the things that they have a hard time with is being seeing themselves on camera and being very preoccupied with sort of pointing out in themselves all the, the flaws that they see and they're worrying about what other people are seeing in them and, and whatnot. So, you know, one of the things that we do, we do ask our individuals that are sort of going to be on, on camera is to take your picture off so that you're not constantly looking at yourself and trying to sort of evaluate how you're looking. You know, so so I think it, it just we have to understand that this new way of being with each other can sort of bring up anxieties that you know maybe weren't there quite as significantly before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to mention with, you know, how many of our grooming practices have been shut down. Right. Exactly. So people yeah. are not able to get their eyebrows done and you know, yeah, exactly. all of these things. <laughs> yeah. So it definitely yeah. makes you attend to things that you maybe wouldn't normally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So do you have some favorite tips for how people can begin to practice body positivity, Dr. Brooks?
1: You know what, I think one of the first steps, even before you get to body positivity, is just some body acceptance. Mm-hmm. Okay, Because, you know, we, we come in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, being able to sort of be in your body and just have some sense of it being all the things that your body really does do for you. You know, it keeps you upright. It gets you here to there. It, you know, keeps you breathing every day. I mean, your, your body does a tremendous amount. And if you're not sort of embracing and having some appreciation for that body, that, you know, I think you really put yourself at war with yourself and then really, I think can really affect your health in, in some ways. So I, I think really being able to look at yourself you know, that that part of treatment can be this sort of exposure work that we do with individuals, which we ask them to just be able to look at their body and sort of describe it in neutral terms, you know, not good, bad, you know, ugly, pretty, you know, but just this is, this is what my body is. And being able to be with that and to accept it is probably, I think, the, the greatest gift. We might You might not ever be able to get to, oh boy, I love my this or I love my that because that may not be what you sort of feel in the moment. But can you accept that your body has value and that it is important to you and that it is worth taking care of and and appreciating? I think that that's really where we need to try to get to.
0: So not even as much body positivity as body acceptance and really just appreciating our body for what it can do for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes people work on affirmations. You know, being able to say positive things about their body. But oftentimes, even if you're saying it inside your head, you're kind of saying other stuff Mm -hmm. to yourself. You know, and so I think just to be able to look at the, you know, so after I take a shower, I stand here kind of look at myself. There's some roles. yes. There's, you know, there's what it is, what it is. And I think to be able to have an appreciation for that, rather than the negatives, you know, sort of noticing the negative self-talk that comes into your head and if you can just sort of let that let that go just kind of okay i don't have to dwell on this i don't have to feed it in my head right now and the more you do that i think what you'll find is that you may you may notice some shifting in how much you are sort of denigrating yourself when you when you look at yourself mhm
0: so do you have some favorite resources that you typically like to share for people who maybe want to learn more or you know need some assistance in this area
1: yeah, well, for those individuals who are struggling with eating disorders right now during this time, there is, you know, I'm not down on all social media, but there is an Instagram think, of a COVID-19 eating support at COVID-19 eating support, which eating disorder professionals from around the world are providing eating support to individuals who are struggling with with their eating disorder 24-7. So if you're having a meal and you need some support, you can tune in to this and there will be someone there that can help with you know, sort of how you're feeling in the moment and to sort of get you through. So I know that's been something that a lot of people in the eating disorder field patients have used that I think has been very helpful. There's a lot of information. Uh, there's a organization called NEDA, the National Eating Disorder Association. They have a lot of information for anyone that may be struggling with an eating disorder. Also, there's a lot of information for anyone who knows of somebody with an eating disorder that may be struggling, like it may be a family member or you know a friend or whatever, and just how do I deal with this? What do I do to help? Um, there's a lot of information around that, and also I think a lot of good information around just if you're having you know disordered eating or just some problematic eating. It doesn't necessarily have to be an eating disorder that there's a lot of of uh, good resources there as well. People can certainly go on to the Renfrew website, the Renfrew Center website, renfrewcenter.com. We have a resource page that has resources and from lots of different areas for teens, for families, for individuals from special populations, if you're a person of color. Also looking at professional resources that are there as well.
0: Thank you so much for all of that, Dr. Brooks. I really appreciate all the wealth of information you shared today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's great talking with you. Thank you.
0: I'm so glad Dr. Brooks was able to join us this week. Don't forget to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 165 to check out some of the resources she shared. And don't forget to share your takeaways with us on social media using the hashtag TBG And please text two sisters in your circle right now and encourage them to check out the episode as well. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this episode and meet some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit RedCrossBlood.org slash OurBlood
1: Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at ConairGirlBomb.com or a retailer near you.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare nowadays a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service state form is the opposite